In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a piece about grieving and accepting body changes, even years later after surgeries and diagnosis. But before we jump in, I just have a quick question for you. Have you downloaded your journal companion to this podcast yet? I am so excited that this guide now exists. So I hope that if you haven't, you'll hop over to wildfirecommunity.org slash the burn and get your own printable journal of some of the favorite writing prompts from this podcast. My goal is to get you writing so you experience the healing power. Head on over to wildfirecommunity.org slash the burn and download your beautiful journal today. All right, on to today's storyteller. As I said, we're going to talk about the surprise of still grieving body changes years later, the power that comes from holding on to options, swimsuit shopping post-mastectomy, and alchemy, aka the art of turning shit into gold. My guest today is Maya Kinney. Maya is a visual artist, a poet, and a mother of two who lives in San Francisco. Maya was diagnosed at 41 with stage three hormone positive ductal breast cancer, and she also carries the PALB2 genetic mutation. She has an MFA in metal smithing, and her favorite material is gold, hence that alchemy comment. Welcome to The Burn, Maya. Thanks, April. I'm happy to be here with you. Yes, I am so excited you're here. Thank you. So you are reading a piece that you wrote called Rip Crawl, and this was in the 2022 body issue that came out this last June. And that was an issue in which I pushed writers like yourself to share the transformations they'd experienced in making their bodies feel like home again. So after you read, we will talk. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's discussion. All right, Maya, I'll let you take it away. On the eve of the two-year anniversary of my double mastectomy surgery, I buy a rip curl surf suit. My husband and I are in Honolulu celebrating surviving a year of pandemic parenting, our COVID-19 vaccinations, and doing all of this after the year of cancer treatment that preceded the pandemic. You can throw a dime in Waikiki and hit a bathing suit shop. We are going out on an all-day kayaking expedition, and I am looking for full coverage. The surf suit is all mom in the front, long-sleeved, zip-up neck. It will keep the sun off my shoulders and collarbone, but the back has a peephole, and the bottom exposes more of my ass than has seen sun for many decades. It is in the style of moderate floss. It is surprisingly comfortable. It is the first one-piece bathing suit I have purchased in over two decades, and if it ever sees a beach outside of Hawaii, 
it is sure to mortify my teenage daughter. Waikiki offers excellent people watching. So many bodies, so many swimsuits, so many sunburns, so much joy. To be out in the waves after a year of confinement, tossing a football with friends in the shallows, popping up on a surfboard, drinking a pina colada under a blue and white striped umbrella. I can't get enough of breasts, of cleavage. I have neither of those things. I am flat like one of those old-fashioned washboards with the ribbed metal to scrub reluctant stains. Only in this analogy, the ribs are my ribs and the metal is my skin. I hadn't intended to be flat after my surgery, but the tissue expanders that my plastic surgeon placed and inflated with 20 cc's of fluid so that they looked like vaguely breast-shaped plastic bags under my thin post-mastectomy skin failed immediately. The skin wasn't getting blood and was dying before my eyes, turning black and necrotic. I would need radiation and there was too much damage to save the expansion. I would need another surgery 10 days after the first to repair the skin and remove the expanders. This is the loss I am still processing two years later. And that's the thing. Even anticipated loss feels like a surprise wave that materialized out of a calm ocean, now ready to drown me. Grief cannot be anticipated, only endured. And so I count the waves. The day before my husband and I fly to Honolulu, I meet with my plastic surgeon for a post-op debrief of my surgery two years ago. She is beautiful, blonde, and kind, and wears old motorcycle boots and a Black Lives Matter pin on her white lab coat. We spend an hour discussing my case. She says it is the outcome everyone dreads. I ask her why she thinks it happened, and we talk and talk. At the end of our time, she assesses my stomach and my thighs to see if perhaps there is enough flesh there to build two small breasts, a procedure called autologous breast reconstruction. I imagine eating copious amounts of food in an effort to make more flesh to move from my stomach area to my chest, like I ate for two during my first pregnancy and again during my second. Maybe for my 49th birthday, when it will be eight years since I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer, when I'm two years away from finishing 10 years of endocrine therapy, when perhaps our daughter will be in her second year of college and our son in his last year of middle school, when no one needs me with the urgency of a preschooler anymore, when everyone has become used to my flatness, perhaps then I will have the flap surgery. I like to think that there are still options. That is always the place of power. But for now, I admire all the top curves I no longer possess. I wade out to the sandbar in front of the Royal Hawaiian in a bright yellow bikini that is electric against my deep brown skin. It is an off-the-shoulder ruffled top. It sort of hides the flatness. The broadly scooped neckline accentuates my collarbones, which I love, and which thankfully the doctors didn't find any cancerous lymph nodes under. I have no scars that show in this yellow number. They are all tucked away. I watch my husband catch waves and float along with him, still buoyant in the vast ocean. Mm, Maya, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. So we will take a quick break here, let you catch your breath, and we will hear from a fan and an advertisement from a supporter. Hi, my name is Katie Anothka and I live in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer at age 30 in 2018. 
Wildfire magazine definitely changed my view on cancer. Before I even found out what wildfire was, I was in the throes of doctor's appointments, surgeries, being a stay-at-home mom, completely overwhelmed with cancer. My aunt actually gifted me a subscription to Wildfire magazine, and that's when my views on cancer changed. I saw women with different bodies enjoying life and living. Since then, I've done the same. Sharing about wildfire with others diagnosed with breast cancer has given me life. Mr. Rogers used to tell the story in interviews that when he was little and afraid of bad things happening in the world, his mother would tell him not to despair, but to look for the helpers. Early stage breast cancer survivor Roberta Lombardi likes to think of Infinite Strength, the nonprofit she founded, as the helper to the metastatic breast cancer community. Infinite Strength was created to support those who face the devastation of this diagnosis and the challenges of this disease, while also facing the challenges of being single mothers in financial despair. By providing six months of financial support for basic human needs like rent, mortgage, and groceries, Infinite Strength helps women living with MBC to have a better quality of life by relieving them of some of their financial burdens. Infinite Strength also offers emotional support to both mother and child through their retreats. If you are a single mother living with MBC and reside in Connecticut, Delaware, District of Columbia, New York, New Jersey, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, or Vermont, go to infinitestrength.org to learn more or email Roberta at infinitestrength.org. Thank you so much for the love, Katie. And thank you for supporting this podcast, Roberta. Thank you so much for the work you're doing for the metastatic community. All right, turning back to you, Maya. Thank you again for your powerful writing and for sharing this story with us today. Thank you. So I want to talk about grief, and I feel like your story is one of a lot of hope. So I want to go to both places, hope and grief, but we can start with grief. And I love this idea of the ocean throughout your story. I find the ocean to be very um, a good metaphor for grief and riding waves and deciding what waves we want to ride. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about flat not being your first choice. You know, we have stories of people who flat was their first choice. It's important that flat be on the menu and that people know it's an option. But I think it's also important to talk about when changes happen during treatment that aren't what you initially set out to have and what you end up with is something maybe you didn't envision going in. Can you talk a little bit about that process of of acceptance and coming to terms with where you're at now? Sure. Um, I really labored over the decision of um, what to do in terms of uh, my my post-mastectomy body. I knew I should have a double mastectomy because I have a gene mutation. Um, I was very large-breasted before my surgery, and so um, breasts and I had always had kind of a a love... (laughs) a push-pull relationship, shall we say. Um, And so I thought, oh, well, wouldn't it be great to consider a new body uh, after this tremendously life-changing experience of cancer treatment? And so I thought and thought, I considered going flat. I was very close to choosing that for myself. And so I knew that that wasn't 
wasn't what I wanted. And so I went in, I said, I'm going to do the expansion. And with that choice also came other choices, not being able to swim in the ocean for many months um, and um, high risk of infection afterwards, high risk of losing the expansion with radiation treatment. So it was, it was not a sure thing. I did not expect to lose it so quickly. Yeah. Um, and that, that was what was hard to make those decisions with a, you know, while in pain, while also um, we, ha- we lost our dog that same week. So there was just a lot of, a lot of grief kind of all um, together in the big soup pot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. So how are you feeling today? Um, you know, we published the story just a few months ago. I'm not sure if you also wrote it only a few months ago, or maybe just give us a little update of how, how you're feeling about your chest now. Uh, I feel great about it. You know, I, I've gotten used to how it looks, how I look in clothing. I have prosthetics every once in a while. I put them on. I kind of view them like lipstick. Um <laughs> because they make me feel a little bit fancy. And, and I love the way my shirts look with just a little bit of curve, Mm -hmm. um, but not enough to do that every day. And, um, and I used to worry that, oh, well, people will notice if some days I have breasts and other days I don't. And I just don't think anyone notices anything really. (laughs) I think you're right. First of all, I love the party foobs. I'm a big fan of that. Um, but second, I think you're right. We we have this idea that we're going to accidentally, you know, stop traffic or people are going to be doing double takes on our chests. And really, people are so wrapped up in their own lives slash see what they expect to see that I don't think people really notice, even, even in a swimsuit necessarily. You know, if we aren't pulling eyes deliberately to us. I think sometimes we just fly under the radar and, and that's okay too. You talk about hope in your piece. I said, I wanted to go from grief to hope. And Mm -hmm. you talk about this idea of keeping options in your back pocket. And I love so much your line about options being the place of power. And I love this idea that that you might decide to have surgery down the road perhaps, or maybe not. But I wonder if you can just kind of talk a little bit about your relationship with hope in general, how you personally cultivate it and how you, um, how you keep it alive. Um, I recently I've started to wade into making plans a year in advance. And to me, that feels incredibly hopeful um, I think for a while post-cancer, I didn't believe that there would be years in advance. And um, I was very focused on the present moment. And and then as, an, as a working artist, I mean, sometimes deadlines happen and you have to say yes to things that are, uh, you know, nine, 12, two years, at, uh, months or years out. And um, so that feels hopeful to me. I love what you just said about giving yourself permission to make plans. I think that that is something that goes away right after diagnosis of any stage where you suddenly feel like your mortality is just breathing down your neck and it isn't safe 
to make plans. So I love that example of allowing yourself to put something on the calendar far out and believe, believe in it too. Yes. And that's a big part of it. For a while I was putting things on the calendar, but I still had a voice in my head that said, no, that's probably not going to happen. Or, you know, this other thing could happen, or I would plan for my children, but not for myself. And um, then especially with the pandemic, I felt like everyone had to learn that lesson about plans being um, not made on solid ground. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think now we're all relearning it together. It's true. It's true. And I think there is grace in in both, you know, learning to let go of some plans and, you know, accepting that. And then also making plans that you do have every intention of seeing through. I've been there too, where I've put things on the calendar knowing I didn't expect them to pan out for me. Uh, so I, I appreciate you talking about that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the work that you do um, as an artist. I, as everyone knows who listens to this podcast, I'm obsessed with fire. I love the metaphor of fire for cancer. I love literal fire for, you know, burning away things that I write that I want to let go of and do ceremonies around that. You, um, you do work with heat as well in metal work. I don't know a lot about metal work, but I love this idea of alchemy and changing things and the metaphor again for your life experience with cancer and turning something rotten. I don't know if rotten is the right word, maybe just something plain into something beautiful. And I'm just wondering if you see that, that parallel too. And if you could talk to us a little bit about your, your artistry. Yeah, that's a great, a great question. Something I think a a lot about my, my work is very material based. Um, So I, I ask questions of a material when I start to use it no matter what it is, but most often it is metal. Um, and and then keep asking those questions as I subject it to different stress or mm. different, um, different tools, different environments, um, different uh, things that could corrode it or, or not, as in the case of gold, gold resists corrosion, um, which is why it's such an amazing storytelling material. And when I work with gold and gold has, it says in my bio, my favorite material is gold. And I mean, of course, gold is beautiful and it resists tarnish and it's beautiful to work with. Um, It's very plastic, it's super malleable, um, but it's also a material that has caused a lot of grief in the world. Um, And so I love the idea of gold as holding a material history and that in my wedding ring, I could have gold that was part of um, a beautiful piece of jewelry that was made by someone in um, pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, you know, and then that, that all is in the material. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk a little more about those questions you ask of the material? I'm so curious about that. Um, Yeah, so I just came back from two weeks assisting a class in the iron studio at a craft center. And I was working a lot with steel, which I work with, but I don't don't necessarily work with it as a primary material. And one of the things about steel is that it is, it's so, um, it's 
it's such a big part of our world. You know, everything from flatware to bridges to um, table bases to uh, bobby pins, paper clips. I mean, you name it, it's made out of steel. It's a super ordinary material. And so then asking it, how does it, how can it imprint on a more valuable material like copper or gold? So I essentially made, I forged steel to make like a big um, printing plate. And then I pressed it hot underneath, you know, of I don't actually know how much pressure, but quite a bit of pressure in a hydraulic press. And, and you get the surface of the steel imprinted on gold, right? So mm -hmm. the steel will over time corrode it will rust, it will not look the same in even five minutes as it did, uh, but the gold will sort of maintain that surface. Um, so that's a kind of question, like what can you do? How much can you endure? And I definitely think of that in this story I'm telling that um, the body is also a stand-in for some of these materials. Yeah. What? Absolutely. Yeah. So if we were to apply that, the steel and the gold metaphor to you and your cancer experience, I love this idea of, you know, two things that maybe don't go together naturally being introduced to each other and then various stresses being applied and changing the beauty of one by the existence of the other in relation to it. And the, all of this isn't to say that I, I think that cancer is a blessing. I kind of hate when people talk about cancer being the, I'm, for some people it is true. It's the, you know, they do feel very fortunate to have experienced it for the changes it brought to their life. But I think it's interesting to take that stress of a cancer and apply it to a life and see what, what comes on the other side of it. Do you, do you feel like you're a changed person from the experience of going through cancer? Very much so. Um, I think that my diagnosis at 41 uh, was sort of an interesting, um, interesting time because it coincided with a, a decade during which many people struggle with identity and purpose mm -hmm. and um, what, what, they're, what they're doing on this earth. Um, so I think that that those questions came to me through cancer a little bit on the early side. I could have used a few more years, I think, um, but also made me, I think, a much more empathetic person um, for people who are who are in illness of all kinds um, to understand how much what a big what a big change that is to and what a loss it is to lose one's health. I, I'll never feel like I'm a healthy person again, mm -hmm. despite feeling strong and, you know, hiking up a mountain or um, eating great food. I, I think it, it has permanently changed my outlook because you see how quickly, um, how quickly cancer can shift one's one's life. And I think as survivors of breast cancer who were diagnosed, you know, in their twenties, thirties, early forties, you see how much loss there is in our community. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it's so interesting what you're talking about too, about identity being informed by illness. And even if you don't want to take on the mantle of, you know, cancer patient or cancer survivor or whatever it is, you know, for each individual, it still leaves a mark. And it might be just that quiet voice in the back of your head saying, you're not you're not a fit person. You're not a well person, or you have the, the ability now to not be, or to become sick again. And it does, it leaves a residue. Mm -hmm. So Maya, thank you so much for being here with me today. I just have one last question for you before I let you go. And I'm just curious if writing has continued to play a role for you in your survivorship and what writing might look like for you today. Uh, writing is a, a huge part of my life. If I were to say that there was any any um, jewel given to me from chemotherapy, it is that I slowed down enough to remember to write. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I write, I've kept writing. Um, it feels like just this super cozy place to return to. I don't have the same um, the same kind of self doubt I experience with with my other art practice, which is totally normal, you know. But I I I feel like because it's mostly about about the words getting onto the paper, and then I'll worry about what happens to them later. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't have that same internal dialogue of. Um, you know, the stages of producing any creative work <laughs> mm -hmm. that one that one might have. I don't know if you experience that, but um, <laughs> I you're you're giving me pause to think and and I do kind of like how it's um, we can't apply expectations of perfection to write. I mean, maybe some people do, but I find that there's so much healing to come in the refining process. So you're right. It's just like, get it on the page. And then we've got something to work with after that. And that is all part of creation with words. And I mean, maybe you're doing it out loud in some way where people are observing it, but I find more it's a private thing that's happening behind the scenes. And then eventually maybe you share it or not, but it's, yeah, it's a different type of art, I think. And I write poems mostly. So I, I am interested in form and containers for the words. Um, not to say that poems need to have those things, but um, I, I find that sometimes the language comes and then the container follows. So. Mm, that makes so much sense. Well, thank you so much for being here, Maya. My guest is Maya Kinney. Her piece is called Rip Curl, and it's in the June-July 2022 issue of Wildfire called Body. Maya, where can people find you or learn more about you online? You can find me on my website, which is mayakinney.com. And I have a section there with writing where you can read more words. Excellent. We will be sure to link to you. Thank you again for being here with me. Thanks, April. Take care. You too. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay to the end for a writing prompt inspired by today's chat. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. 
Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode, to find our now 38 issues in the Wildfire Archives, and to take a writing workshop with me. There's no place on the planet like a wildfire writing workshop, and I want you to experience it for yourself. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. Here is your writing prompt. I'm taking this, or I'm taking inspiration rather, from a quote from Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. Here's the quote. This is why alchemy exists, said the boy, so that everyone will search for his treasure, find it, and then want to be better than he was in his former life. Lead will play its role until the world has no further need for lead, and then lead will have to turn itself into gold. That's what alchemists do. They show that when we strive to become better than we are, everything around us becomes better too. So here's the prompt. What experiences in your life have you turned from lead to gold and how? What experiences in your life have you turned from lead to gold and how? Set your timer for eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care.